0: Good morning, everyone, uh, or evening, or whatever time you listen to this. <laughs> um, we um, we release these podcasts, you know, obviously, periodically. This is um, a podcast we're recording in the middle of November, uh, and it'll probably come out within the next two or three months. Um, so, But the state of the world today and world politics, everything's moving really, really fast. So suddenly things get outdated really quickly because... Uh, Who knows what will happen in the the general election in the UK in mid-December? Who knows what will happen with political impeachment hearings across the water? Um, Who knows what will happen in terms of Irish politics and where we're going? Um, And I suppose in the midst of these transient, fast-moving times, um, it is really meaningful to find... Um, to have conversations that are uh, deeper than just the latest political intrigue, that search for something um, a bit deeper. And uh, it's a real privilege today on the Guardians of the Flame podcast to be interviewing Kathleen Falsani, uh, if I've said your last name right. yeah. Um, And Kathleen, I've had the pleasure of, well, I didn't walk for 200 miles with her, but I walked for a chunk of that um, (laughs) with her and Jared McKenna along the Irish border and um, she's been over here for the last two weeks doing that and so I want to interview her and talk a little bit about that walk that we've done literally in the last two weeks but also a bit about some of her past her career she's a writer Uh, she's written books edited books she's written for newspapers for countless uh, magazines um, and interviewed some uh, really interesting people so uh, I'd love to hear a bit about that and uh, and you know we'll see where we go so uh, welcome, Kathleen, and thanks for being here.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you for having me with you today yeah. in the last couple of weeks and for yeah. the next few days, and it's yeah. always nice to be in your company.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's been it's been really, um, it's just been brilliant. Uh, one of the things, maybe we'll just start actually talking a bit about this walk that we've just done. So in the summer, we do a walk, um, a border walk, which is pretty much the same thing. Um uh, but no the key word there is the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. November November in Ireland is definitely not the summer. And um we I've been joking, you know, that Jared McKenna, who's from Australia, had this, you know, bright idea that November would be a great time of year to walk the <laughs> Irish border. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs>
1: totally wrong. Yeah, no. Well
0: it, actually the you know, the weather wasn't too bad. You no. didn't get snowed under blizzards in the Glenshane Pass or anything, but <laughs> um But, uh, it was beautiful. I remember the first day Kathleen flew in and you might've just got the date slightly wrong. So she flew in at seven on the morning of our departure, (laughs) uh, of a 16 mile walk to cross McGlynn. And, um, she got off the plane, drove up to Newry, um, changed into her walking gear and, and started walking. And, And uh, that was quite something. I was, what was very proud that? of
1: myself. <laughs> Do you
0: remember that? Do you remember that day at all?
1: Uh, vaguely, vaguely oh. remember that day. Um, yeah, my co- my cousin, Katerina, who lives in Banbridge, came and picked me up, as she often does. And uh, we had some car trouble on the way. I don't know if you remember that part. <laughs> yes, so you ended right. up picking me. Uh, I think you guys came to me at her car dealership while that's she went right. to work. Yeah. But... Um, so there was a fast change in the bathroom, I think, at the car dealership that I vaguely recall again. But uh, yeah, that first day is a bit of a blur. But I think we walked, was it 16 miles the first day or 12 yeah, miles? It was over
0: something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um, yeah, it was just sort of a, oh my gosh, I'm actually here and I'm actually doing this. It's yeah. not that I haven't been to Ireland before. I actually get over here pretty often. But um, I've never just gotten on a plane because. A guy that I've known for 10 years, but had never ne- never actually met in person, had a dream and yeah. told me about it, which is yeah. how it happened with, with Jared. He had a dream about walking the border and told me about it. And I told my husband and my husband said, you should go. And I'm in a period of my life right now in a season where uh, I'm doing more crazy things that don't make sense, that don't have a uh, uh, an expected outcome attached to them. Um, and it's been some of the best stuff I've ever done in my life, this included, the two weeks have just been, it was crazy. What a crazy thing to do, and how beautiful, and how transformative, and I've actually just decided to stay on for another 10 days Mm. so I can process it a little bit more before I head back to sunny Southern California and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that, but...
0: So the, the day we left uh, was the 31st of October, which yeah. at one point looked like it was going to be Brexit day. Right. And that was, I think, a big part of the kind of the, the, the vision of, of the walk was to walk along the border, this contentious border, this contentious piece of land um, at a time when big issues were being decided in faraway places and the little people on the ground often get overlooked. And, um As you walked, I mean, the border walk, I mean, you walk from, there's very few big cities. Um, It's mostly small little communities and areas. What are some of your kind of uh, things that really grabbed you as you walked this border?
1: You know, uh, time is a construct and borders certainly are as well, um, is what I kept thinking as we walked three miles an hour, life at three miles an hour is a very different perspective, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm. it's precious, and I'm glad I had it. I don't know when I'll have it again for long stretches of time. But, you know, um, my grandmother, uh, Nellie Brady, was from Bally uh, James Dauphin County Cabin, so she grew up not far from the border. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there many times. I've been through the border many times, um, always in a car. I've been through the border many times, both when there was a hard border and a soft border, and um, what really struck me, walking as we did, there was a day, one day in particular, where we weaved in and out on foot without knowing, between the north and the south, between three different counties, and they were day those days in particular where we really didn't see very many people. Mm-hmm. We saw animals, mm-hmm. sheep and donkeys and the occasional fox and a couple of dead badgers but i thought they don't know whether they're grazing in the north or the south they just know it's green mm. and when you walk through the the byroads, the back roads of this place you don't know if, where you are other than that you're in ireland mm. and there's something to that you know jared and i had a couple of days where it was just the t- for long stretches it was just the two of us walking and we're both kind of goofy and so there was a lot of chitter chatter but then there was a lot of silence and we talked about uh the two of us talked about listening to the land there's a lot of history here obviously and along the border there's a lot of pain and a lot of painful history and we were cognizant of that as we walked along you'd be walking along a country road for a couple of miles and come around a bend, and all of a sudden there would be a memorial to someone, somebody from one side, and I'm using air quotes, or another, who died under violent circumstances, usually at a very young age. Um, Some of them were very old markers dating back to the 19-teens, and some of them were much more recent than that. And I thought about... We were standing. You were there with us one day when we were in cabin, in a corner of Cavan and where there is a um, a digger that's been left at a crossroads. That is a memorial to the farmers in that part of the country, who every time their roads were blown up by, I'm assuming, the British military at the time, um, they would, and they did that to prevent.
0: It was like a, whatever. To prevent escape routes. You escape
1: know, routes, or just to. Have to, to mess with the farmers, whatever it was, that they would come out with with their tractors and their diggers, and they would make the roads passable again. and they did this over and over and over and over again. And it was sitting there and he one of the gentlemen who was telling us about this pointed to a farmhouse, you know in the distance, maybe an eighth of a mile away from where we were standing. And he said, if he wanted to go, if that man wanted to go to mass and they had blown up the roads, he had to go fifteen miles around to go basically a mile to his church. Mm. Um, and that's not cool. Mm. But what I also thought of is that you had neighbors, farmers, um, whether and, and people living on housing estates. There's not a lot of industry. It seems like there's not a lot of wealth along mm. the border, either side of it, who were ostensibly made to understand each other as enemies. And they... They were violent toward each other, and that this retaliation, mm. a head for a head, you know, somebody was blown up, so somebody was shot, so somebody. And I've paid attention to this my whole life because my family was very proud about being Irish, and we knew that my grandmother was from a border area, and she left in December 1920, just before partition. She died when my mom was four, so we never got to ask her why she left, so we only have sort of presumptions. Mm um but i've uh, i paid attention to this i grew up during the era of the troubles and i read about it in the newspaper and i did research papers about it when i was in junior high and high school and my my very italian father was very invested in what was happening here on this island um even when my irish mother was busy doing other things so i've known about it but to actually walk the distance it's not like driving through the Shankill mm. or driving through Derry and taking pictures of the of the murals and going oh this is what happened here when you're walking slowly through an area where these atrocities happened to neighbors in the middle of nowhere mm. again i'm using air quotes it it took on a whole different weight mm. and it was um heartbreaking mm. You know, I thought, it, it, and it makes me think about what's going on in my own country where things are so divided and people cavalierly talk about civil war. And I thought, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's been many years since neighbors fought neighbors in the United States. And that was a terrible war. But we're at a point where, you know, we're so divided politically and ideologically. And i it's all identity stuff. The labels really don't matter. It's just Us and them, whoever your us is and whoever the them that is for you, where it it feels precarious, the peace that we have there, just like there's a precariousness to the peace that you have here, Mm. not knowing what would happen if when when the Brexit vote happens and Mm. what would happen to these communities if a hard border came back. Mm. And so, yeah, it just fra said, you know, three miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, is a is a very different perspective, and and it is. Yeah. Uh, and I felt, and I know Jared felt the same. What a gift to be able to experience that at such a time as this, both for people in Ireland and people from in the diaspora, yeah. um, and those of us who still think of Ireland as home, even though we weren't born here. Yeah.
0: That's the great philosopher, Fra Sands. That's the great Fra Sands. He uh, <laughs> is actually recording this. He put some uh,
1: reverb on it every time I say <laughs> the great and powerful Fra
0: Sands. <laughs> um, yeah, life at three miles an hour. It is a different pace than uh, probably Southern California, a different pace than Belfast. Yeah. Um, different pace than all of us. And I think that is probably the gift of, of a pilgrimage, which, mm-hmm. what that walk is, that border um, uh, walk is, it's a pilgrimage. Uh, I suppose you were mentioning there that the digger, thats uh, that monument is just outside little villages called Swanland Bar uh, mm. on the Republic side and Kenali on the north side. Um, villages that most people in this country actually wouldn't really ever go to. Right. Um, they're off the beaten track. But there's people there, lovely, amazing people. We had lovely. an incredible conversation with a guy just outside Swanland Bar mm-hmm. who lived in Kenali, um, and ended up, taking us around, you know, heard what you were doing. You could jump in the car and we all jumped in. Oh, you
1: have to see this. And yeah. you, you've walked too far already. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, oh, yeah. all right, we'll get yeah. in the car. And, yeah.
0: People you know, always wanting to give you lifts. You're, uh, going, you're walking to a So Belcoo. many times. <laughs> I've been offered <laughs> so
1: many lifts yeah. in the last you, you two weeks. You have to
0: go, no, the point is we're walking, you yeah. know. But, uh,
1: but that man and how kind yeah. he was, right, yeah. to strangers. And then just in passing, the story he told yeah. about yeah. driving with his two-year-old son in the car yeah. and having a... Uh, a, soldier. a soldier put the barrel of a gun, kiddingly, mm. one mm. supposes, but my God, mm. to the temple of his two-year-old's head. Yeah, I, I don't think I'll forget that image yeah. for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and chilling. That, in that place where that digger is is um, at one of the border crossings, one of over 200 border crossings that we would have, you know, I don't know how many we would have walked past in that walk. Mm. Um but there's so many that are the the kind of futility of a hard border or the the incredulity of yes. the idea of putting a hard border in in those kind of with so many crossings. And of course during the Troubles the soldiers did um dig up roads. They blew up like for instance the bridge about between but ba- the northern town of Balku that is mm-hmm. right next to the Republic town of Black Lion. And they blew it up. You know, I think in many ways it was to make it easier for them to patrol and police um, the border areas at a time when the IRA would often kind of run across to and fro the border. Um, but it undoubtedly made life very difficult for local people. And I think that there is a be- something very beautiful about that, that digger, the yep. idea these these v- farmers would all come together and they would resurface a road that had been dug up so right. that they could walk a mile to, tr- to mass every morning instead of 15 miles, you right. know? And, um, yeah, there was lots of, lots of memorials. I'm always struck as I mm-hmm. walk the border. They... The blood that has been shed you know whether it's from the ira's border campaign that predated the troubles or mm-hmm. during the troubles of course most many of the protestant dead are memorialized within churches mm-hmm. um so you'll you know you'll go into a um, jared was struck when he was at the in was it Dungannon? He went into a church of Ireland, or or Armagh. Oh,
1: when we were in Armagh, we went to both the St. Patrick's. And, yeah, and, and then you see the flags, and you right. see
0: memorials to dead people, um, and you know there's been a lot of bloodshed. And I think I really appreciate you coming all the way from America in the footsteps of your grandparents to yeah. to pray, to pray with your mouth, but did. also with your yeah. feet, that there yeah. would be no more bloodshed in these in these roads. You know,
1: there were times when I was walking. 'Cause I'm slower mm. than some of the twenty year olds who were walking with us. And um I just I wanted to be able to finish and so mm. I had to slow down. I know what my body can do, what it can't do. And so I had a, a couple of days there where I walked a lot by myself and for part of that time I listened to Seamus Heaney read his poetry, mm. which was sometimes about the very places I was walking through. Mm. So it was but I also thought about, you know, how can I be prayerful when I don't know what to say other than peace, 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 mm-hmm. um, and I tried to get that into my breath as I was moving, and I tried to think of every footfall is a mm-hmm. prayer for peace, every you know, for peace and tranquility in this land, for all hearts, um, and for you know for healing mm-hmm. in whatever way, mm-hmm. from old yeah. wounds, and hopefully not from new wounds, but just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I felt like I was trying to bless the land in mm. whatever way I could with the bottom of my hiking boots. Mm, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I think Jared had a, a phrase which I think is quite beautiful, that the the prayer that places where there have been thick scars yes, would become thin, thin places, places. You know, and I that's think brilliant. there's something of the kingdom in that. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I thought that was I loved the the fact that you were kind of walking miles and miles listening to Seamus Heaney. Yeah, um, <laughs> you he once sent you a poem um, which uh, you used in one of your books.
1: Yeah, he was uh, he was very special. So he, first of all, he's hands down. There's no contest. My favorite poet and has been from all of my adult life, at least. And uh, when I was working on my first book, this is back in 2005, um, it was a book called The God Factor, which was me in conversation with lots of different, we called them culture shapers because they're not all celebrities, but they're all well-known people about what they believed. Um, And I was in my publisher's office in New York for the first time, and, and she said, who's at the top of your list? You've got to have a wish list. I'm like, oh, there's no question, Seamus Heaney. She goes, really? Hold on a second. She goes, Jonathan? And calls down the hallway of the publishing house to a man named Jonathan Galassi, who was the Mm -hmm. publisher, Mm -hmm. and and I can't remember if he still is, of of, uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and Faber and Faber. And I didn't know at the time, because I'm basically Forrest Gump, um, and I just wander into places and don't know what's going on, that Jonathan was uh, Mr. Heaney's editor and had been for many many years and so he she said tell jonathan what you just told me and so i did and he went oh yeah do you want me to it just i I can get a note to him Mm -hmm. you know but he uses a fax machine which i loved in 2005 Mm he's just using it so i wrote a letter and asking him if he would you know give me an interview if i could come to see him and if he would talk to me about it about what he believed Mm -hmm. um and several weeks went by, and I got a. I had left the newspaper that I was working for at the time, the Chicago Sun-Times, where I'd been for many years, took a sabbatical to write the book. So I was at home about 20 minutes from the newsroom, and I got a phone call from the woman who managed the newsroom. She said, you got a fax from Ireland? I went, don't read it to me. I'll be right there. And mm-hmm. jumped in the car, ran down. And he said in his two-page uh, fax that... He was so honored that I would ask him, and it was quite dear, and he appreciated what I was doing, um, but that he was, I think the word he used, woefully inarticulate about faith, mm-hmm. his own at least, which, please, but um, but thanked me immensely again. It was the nicest rejection letter I've ever had. And then at the very end of the first page, he said something like, um, pr- I've attached something that if you can use it in some way, please do mm. and it was a poem mm. that at the time was unpublished wow. and you know i've it's one of the be- the greatest gifts i've ever been given yeah. and it speaks a little bit to um to that question of what do you mm. believe in about faith in this land and um
0: can you read us i, so? I
1: can yeah. and so it, he published it later in another volume of book and one of his volumes and under a, a different title in a slightly different form but this Uh, in the God Factor book, was called A Found Poem. And he says, Like everybody else, I bowed my head during the consecration of the bread and wine, lifted my eyes to the raised host and raised chalice, believed, whatever it means, that a change occurred. I went to the altar rails and received the mystery on my tongue, returned to my place, shut my eyes fast, Made an act of thanksgiving, opened my eyes, and felt time starting up again. There was never a scene when I had it out with myself or with another. The loss of faith occurred off stage. Yet I cannot disrespect words like thanksgiving or host or even communion wafer. They have an undying pallor and draw like well water far down.
0: Wow. He did
1: have a way with words.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And just, uh, and how many of us have had that experience and how many people in this land have had that experience.
0: Mm. And I I loved going to Balaki, which is the village. we wound up there too. (laughs) Seamus Heaney's home village uh, in County Derry. Uh, We did a screening of Guardians of the Flame there during the walk. And uh, yeah, it was great to have you there, Kathleen. And mm-hmm. and uh, after I zoomed off in the car to get home, you um, stayed behind and saw his grave, did you? It, you?
1: Well, we were we were there with Eugene Reevy, and, yeah. and, and and did a little panel discussion afterwards. And there was a priest in 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 the crowd, and I knew him by his collar. And he asked some questions, and we were milling about afterwards, visiting with a few people. And I said, "Excuse me, Father, are you are you the pastor here?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I am." I said. Did, are you the one who buried James Heaney? He said, oh yeah, I did. I did. Cause yes, his yeah. funeral was in yes, Dublin, yeah. but he was buried there in Milwaukee. Yeah. And I said, wow. And he told me something um, beautiful and private and uh, about the, the Heaney family. And so I thought, um, my goodness, how, how, how wonderful. And then he showed me where the bathroom was downstairs. And then we said, goodnight. And as we were walking out the, the sexton, as we would call him in, in, in an Episcopal church, but the, I don't know what he's called in mm-hmm. the, catholic context but the mm. custodian and I almost didn't say something but I was like when am I going to be back mm. here again mm. um I said is the is the cemetery open he said mm. oh yeah I said can you show me he goes, do you want to see himself I said <laughs> I do I do actually and so he very kindly walked us through in the dark mm-hmm. under there was a big moon that night uh to where Shamacinie is buried under a tree in the corner and I was able to Pay my respects to the great man, and oh. that was an unexpected turn yeah. of events. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mo- yeah. Uh, mostly because we were walking at that time, kind of at, on the other side of the yeah, island. Yeah, but we had come up, and oh, that was that was that yeah. was a wonderful night.
0: And I suppose um, a more modern, a more a younger poet in uh, in <laughs> Ireland is uh, Bono, um, <laughs> and uh, you one of the one of your uh, kind of many jobs or titles has been to write for you two. Um, not their songs, but for their, their, (laughs) yeah, I do do, uh,
1: sometimes write some, uh, content for their, their website. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And over the years you've kind of got to know them, got the band and you were just chatting a bit before and you were just talking a little bit about their current tour in Australia and New Zealand. What are some of your reflections on that?
1: You know, it's, it's interesting. This is a tour that they did in the States, well, in North America and South America, um, a few years ago on the 30th anniversary of the Joshua tree. So it's the Joshua tree, 2019 tour, Mm. um, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Japan, Korea, a couple other places. And then they end up, they're ending their tour in mid December in Mumbai Mm. for their first show in India for the first time. But you know, when they decided to take the, the, that album out, um, which was going to be happening right after, the election in 2016. Um, it was when they started to look at the songs again, they, and in turn, fans like me who are of a certain age, you know, Johnny, yeah. you and I are the same vintage. Um, it was kind of incredible to see how prescient the songs back then from 1987 were in 2017. Mm. And again, they continue to have this, not just in the United States, not just in Ireland, but all over the world at this extremely nervous time that we're all trying to live through. Mm. They have a real resonance. And so as exciting as it was for people like us who were fans the first time the album Mm. came out, Mm. to hear it live, perhaps some Mm. of us for the first time, um, some of us again, uh, I've, it was, it's been interesting watching the younger fans and their response to this you know, like really overtly political m- music that we don't hear as much of anymore. Yeah. Um, and and U2 does a fantastic job of making arenas into sacred spaces yeah. um, and are very intentional about yeah. wanting to... Wanting the fans who are there to have a a certain kind of experience, Mm. a thoughtful experience, a jubilant experience Mm. for sure. But that is a very serious album. There's a whole arc there in the middle Mm. um, Mm. that's so kind of uh, dark even Mm. still Mm. that Bono has to create a whole new character Mm. to perform it through so Mm. he doesn't injure himself spiritually Mm. each night. But so it, I've just we've been walking since the the tour started. Sometimes I watch the the live feed, mm. you know, from wherever they are, and I haven't been able to do that yet. But I have seen video and I have seen pictures from um, from Auckland and then from the first couple of shows in in Australia. And to see the the fans respond mm. the way I saw them and respond mm. in the United States, mm. I went to Mexico City and they went bananas mm. for there too. Mm. And So there's, there's a quality to that Joshua Tree album that is defiant, Mm. but it's not, it's post-punk. So it's not defiance for defiance sake. Mm. It's defiance to an end. Like you Mm. don't, we don't have to live this Mm. way. We Mm. can change things. Mm. You can do something about it. Mm. Um, And then, you know the The album itself isn't long enough to do a two and a mm. half hour long show mm. around, so they add other songs too. Yeah. And you know some of the songs that they've added um at least the first two legs of the tour, and I again haven't been paying attention enough. I'm sorry, mm. guys, because <laughs> I've been walking to what the set list is, but some of them are songs that are about um growing up during the troubles mm. in mm. on the north side of Dublin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and Bono came from a family that was. Um, problematic for a lot of people. His father was Catholic, his mother was Church of Ireland. And Mm. so, you know, the other guys in the band were Protestants, but and they went to a school, Mount Temple, that was the first of its kind, if I understand it correctly, Mm. on this island that Mm. educated Protestants Mm. and Catholic students together. So this... The us and them mm. thing mm. was something that was very much a part of their reality. It was very much even yeah. in their homes.
0: I've always loved you like I was telling you on the yeah. work i like I'm a big fan of you too like I haven't i, I like I've liked every album they've released since two thousand, but they haven't I haven't necessarily loved it as much as their earlier stuff up mm-hmm. until pop I loved pop. But uh, there's always been a kind of an anger, a protest, but also hope. And you, right. as you said, you can do something. Um, do you have a little anecdote of a conversation or a memory with Bono that you kind of that speaks to where we're at now and um, that kind of sense of hope, but also protest? And...
1: I, yeah, I can. Well, two things come to mind. He likes to quote. I think it was Joe Strummer who said, "What's the lyric? Anger is an energy. Anger, mm-hmm. it, do something with it." Mm. is the point mm. it exists we mm. all have it do something with it channel it in the right direction and bono of course through his activism actually the other guys in the band too in their mm. various endeavors have always or have made a point to try to channel mm. that into change mm. for, for to make other people's lives better and more equitable i, I think about um i first met bono um about 17 years ago uh, as a journalist he was before the one campaign mm. there was something called data debt mm. aids trade africa that he started with bobby shriver mm. who is the of course the nephew of john f kennedy mm. um and they launched this endeavor with a bus tour of the midwest uh, that started on world aids day which is december 1st 2002 and clever me heard about what was going on and managed to talk my way onto the bus if (laughs) you if you will so i traveled the whole time with them as as a journalist Mm. and my newspaper um were the editor the editor-in-chief in in particular was very supportive of doing this and so the stories were running off the front page as Mm. we got closer to chicago and as we drove past chicago and we had lots and lots of time to talk and uh, and I heard him and talked to lots of other people and this was the first time um, in a long time that he had agreed to talk about his faith publicly because mm. he'd mm. been beaten up and still is mm. by all sides mm. you know by Christians for not you know for swearing and for people <laughs> who aren't Christians for being holier than that you just can't mm. win mm. so um, but he trusted me enough to talk about why he why he was doing what he was doing on behalf of Africans. At that point, it was to try to get the American church in particular, mm. evangelicals in particular, to pay attention to the AIDS emergency mm. in sub-Saharan Africa. And and to their credit, they did mm. um, in, no, in no small part because of mm. the fomenting of mm. the pest, as he calls himself. Mm. Um, we were riding in the bus one day, doing one of our interviews, and my editor had asked me to sort of, ask these devil's advocate questions that I don't know that I necessarily would have asked on my own. Not because yeah. I was fawning over mm. him by any means, I wasn't, but uh, just because I'm not combative that way. That's not my way as yeah. a reporter. But I said, okay, well, some people say, <laughs> why throw good money after bad, or why there's so much need, mm. why even bother? And mm. and he said something. He said, you know, Kathleen, we can't do. Everything we can't do, everything, but what we can do, we must do, Mm. Uh, and that stuck with me. Mm. And it stuck with me in a way that, if I fast forward Mm. five or five five years or so, when I was in Malawi, a place that I got to, I don't even think I would have known about were it not for the work Mm. that he was doing. Mm. Some of the people I met through him where I met a boy, my husband and I who were both journalists, uh, which I know is a dirty word in some places, mm. but we are. Mm. Um, when we were traveling uh, mm. on vacation, we had won a trip, if you can believe it, in a raffle to Africa, but we were traveling as private citizens, but mm. you can never turn off that journalist hat, it's always there. But we met this little boy uh, who was an orphan who was living on the streets in Blantar, Malawi, mm. in the south, the southern part of the, the country. and long story short he was born with a heart defect and he was dying and Mm. we were there for three days and we were trying to get somebody to to take him to a doctor or could we take Mm. him to a doctor or could we take him to south africa we Mm. could we do something or could Mm. we provide the money and this one just exasperated aid worker said there are so many kids and there's only so much we can do Mm. and i knew that we had to leave mm. we were meant to be in a different country mm. the next day we had a flight to catch and i couldn't heal his heart myself and i had to get on that damn plane mm. and fly out of there and i was so angry i was i was wailing like weeping like so much so mm. that the the co-pilot came back to see if i was all right mm. i was mm. making a scene on the plane mm. and i because i had to I've, we were taking off from Blontyre, and i could see the lights of the city and that's that little boy was mm. down there somewhere and mm. i thought about all the times I'd taken off from airports in Chicago and New York and other places and looked down, and I thought, you know, if that kid was a homeless kid in mm. Chicago right now, he'd be mm. at some hospital getting some kind of mm. care, and this kid's probably going to die because he's poor and African, mm. and that's just wrong. Mm. And as I'm weeping and wailing and crying, Bono's voice literally came mm. to my mind, mm. and I heard him say again, we can't do everything, Kathleen, but what we can do, we must do. Mm. And I'm not independently wealthy, Mm. I'm not a doctor, I'm not Madonna, (laughs) I'm not a politician, but I am a writer and I had a platform. And so, as soon as I had a chance, when I got back about a week later, I wrote a column about him, Mm. telling very much what I just said. Mm. And my frustration that he, where, you know, because of the, whatever, serendipity of where he was born, Mm. and the circumstances of his his birthplace, that he was going to die... Um, and much to my surprise and joy, uh, the readers, hundreds, then thousands of them started sending letters and Mm -hmm. sending money and doctors and hospitals came Mm. forward very quickly and said, if you can get him here, we'll fix Mm. his heart. Mm. And eventually we did, um, and his heart was fixed and then laws changed because of another rock star, Mm -hmm. Madonna (laughs) high fives. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were able to adopt him and he's my son. Mm -hmm. He's now 20 years old and perfectly healthy. And, uh, two years ago at Christmas, we came here for, we came Mm -hmm. to Ireland for Christmas and he Mm -hmm. was able to meet all of my, some of my, uh, scores of cousins Mm -hmm. from County Gavin. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that was a long winded, yeah answer to a good question but no that's something that he said that had like real world ramifications for my life and for the life of a boy named voshko yeah
0: um i yeah it reminds me that's a lovely story kathleen it it reminds me of um yeah you two song uh not to, we could, Where you we, live we could, we should could not decide yeah. whether you live or, or whether you die. die. Yeah. Don't, oh yeah. Every, yeah. And, I hear um, that in my head a lot. And, um, yeah, the crumbs from your table, right. you know, and, and I think what's, um, what's beautiful there is that you're, you weren't giving someone the crumbs from your table. You're doing what you could do, which in this case was using influence and ultimately adopting someone, which is, beautiful um well, and of course know. as any adoptive parent
1: will tell yeah. you the kid is much yeah. more of a gift yeah. than the other way around yes yeah um yeah, uh, yeah. That's,
0: that's beautiful. And that maybe brings us on to a, a book you've just um, written or put together, edited. Mm. Um, and you wrote a chapter in it, and your son wrote it, a chapter. He did, could, yeah. <laughs> could you tell us a bit about that book? So,
1: yes, this, this is a, a compendium that, that uh, along with uh, a woman named Jenny Dyer um, and I co-edited, um, about the issue of hunger. It's called mm. The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope. Hope being the optimum word there for feeding the world. Um, And the idea of this, um, a little bit like that bus ride across the Midwest many years ago to get people to respond to the AIDS crisis, is trying to get, in this case it's an American publisher, but it goes for whoever's reading, uh, to get Christians to re-engage around the issue of hunger again. We've made incredible strides in the last generation. We've cut uh, extreme poverty in half and in turn cut Uh, extreme hunger if you will in half but there are still about 800 million people who live daily without enough food Um, and we have the ability experts say to close that gap in the next um, by 2030 we hope so the book is written by lots of different kinds of people talking about hunger and what we can do Um, what we can do as individual people as families as influencers and so there. No matter whose chapter you go to in the book, and there's everybody from, you know, country singer Brad Paisley and his wonderful wife, Kim Williams Paisley, to um, Jeffrey Sachs, the economist who wrote or was one of the authors of the Sustainable Development Goals for the United Nations and then we have um you know me and uh, a few friends of yours uh, Jonathan Martin wrote a beautiful beautiful chapter Mike McHarg opens the book with a chapter about what happens to our brain when we're hungry and what happens to our brain when we help um and I wrote a st- I was asked to write a chapter about the f- the first 1000 y- in a section in the book that talks about the first 1000 days of a child's life being the most important for them developmentally in nutrition and how important that is. And I didn't meet my son until he was seven and I have no idea what the first thousand days of his like life were like. So my the title of my chapter is A Thousand Days and a Million Questions. But then we also asked a few people around the world who have lived with or are living with hunger to write. And so Vashko, my son, actually wrote about what it was like to be hungry as a child, and then what it was like to become an American kid and not be hungry, and how he thinks about those two things. And so we're, we're hopeful that it'll become, this book will become a tool for people to do what you can Again, just, you know, we don't have to do everything. It's an overwhelming issue. We, our minds, Mike McCarg writes about this in his chapter, our minds cannot handle a figure like 800 million. We can perceive of a a hundred or a thousand, maybe even a hundred thousand, because we've seen that at a football stadium or something, or in a protest. But anything beyond that, our mind just kind of goes tilt. And, and, and in turn, we kind of become paralyzed to do anything about it because it just seems so overwhelming. So his point and the point made by many others is you don't have to solve the whole issue by yourself. You can start by making one change, maybe eat one vegetarian meal a week. Um, there's a chapter in here by a very famous chef from the United States um, named Rick Bayless. Who's, the, cha- the title is, when, when You Eat, Sit Down our approach, our, our literal physical approach to food matters. We eat slower. We think more about our food when we're seated. So, um, yeah, so it's, I'm, I'm very proud of the, of the book and I, and Jenny and I are very hopeful that it'll get into the hands of lots of people, lots of pastors, lots of student groups, and that they'll be able to, uh,
0: start making changes. Um, so I wonder if, so the book is called The End of Hunger. I wonder if um, you would be able to read a little excerpt from uh, the chapter you wrote.
1: Sure. Um, some of this talks about this the the story that I just shared a little bit about how we became a family. But um, And this is, a, again, a chapter that is called um, um, A Thousand Days and a Million Questions about all the things that I don't know about his infancy and his just, you know, when he was in utero and all that. Um, I didn't become Vashko's mother until he was nine years old. I missed those crucial first 1,000 days by at least six years. I won't ever know what his infancy was like. Was he colicky? Did he suck his thumb? Was he an easy baby? What was What his first word was, how old he was when he learned to walk, or how and when he was first diagnosed with the heart defect. I won't ever know for sure whether Adina, that's his birth mother's name, breastfed him, although she probably did, as about 95% of Malawian mothers do, one of the highest scores for breastfeeding in the the developing world. Um, By the time Vashko was two, sadly, Adina likely was sick or dying. I don't know what she fed him when he was weaned, or moved on to solids? Was she able to provide him with more than the maize paste and greens that are are the staples of the Malawian diet? Did he get sufficient protein to help his young brain grow cassava, sweet potatoes? I don't know. At the time of Vashko's birth in 1999, Malawi had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world, 107 deaths per 1,000 live births. Today, that same rate has dropped dramatically to 39 deaths per 1,000 live births. And that's a reduction of about 72% from 1990 when the rate was 138 deaths per 1,000 live births. In this regard, Malawi is considered a success story by the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and others. But the country still has one of the highest rates of stunted children in the world. More than half of all Malawian children are stunted. Stunting means a child has low height and size for his or her age is the result of children missing out on vital nutrients when they were in utero through the first two years of their lives, those magical, all-important first 1,000 days. Um, And I go on to talk about all of those various things and How, when one child is stunted, it doesn't just affect the child, it affects Mm. the whole community because they don't learn as well and they don't get as high, they don't earn as much, and then the cycle of poverty continues. But whatever Adina was able to do for Vashko in those first 1,000 days, the quote, window of opportunity to build healthier and more prosperous futures, as one UNICEF report calls it. As her health was failing and he was struggling to thrive against the complications presented by a significant heart defect, it apparently was enough. because despite his heart problems, which were fixed in '19 in 2009 in Chicago, Vashko has grown into a strong, athletic, healthy, bright, extremely fit young man who learns things quickly, thinks deeply, and has, ex- has seemingly infinite reserves of patience, grace, and peace. Vashko is the miraculous exception to the rule. He shouldn't have to be, and with God's grace, soon he won't be.
0: Mm. Amen. It's lovely, Kathleen. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for sharing the story of, of your son there oh, as well. thank you. Well, maybe we'll just kind of move to the the end of the interview. And I'd just like to hear kind of one more kind of thought or reflection, which would be uh, on an interview you did with possibly the most well-known person now. He Maybe then he wasn't the most well-known, which is <laughs> Barack Obama. Um, oh, yeah. So you interviewed... Um, well, I don't know if he is the most famous. Who's more famous, Bono or Barack Obama? <laughs> I,
1: I Bono would say Barack Obama. Yeah. So uh, let's, yeah. say, let's say President Obama. Yeah.
0: And, um, but uh, can you interviewed him when he was um, before the White House. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that interview? Because I think it's quite interesting, the kind of the content of it. Yeah. Um, but then we can also like reflect on where we're at in this sure. moment.
1: So um, when I interviewed Barack Obama, it was in the early part of 2004, I believe. He had just won the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate seat. He would eventually go on to win. Mm. Um, he was a state senator at the time, and we had just we being like you know journalists in Chicago who didn't already know who he was because we because they covered like community organizing um we had just figured out how to pronounce his name and that he didn't go by Barry anymore he went by Barack and so this was this is early on this is before he spoke at the Democratic National Convention okay. which is mm-hmm. when the world we'll got to it, hear yeah. got to hear from him from for the first time so i was doing a um a series in the paper Um, we have sort of in news, well, we used to at least newspapers have sort of like the sweeps week that, that television had or has, I don't even know if that works anymore, where, um, that's where they, they count how many subscribers you have. And that's sort of the barometer that they use for advertising for the next year. And so occasionally an editor would come to me and say, could you do a special project for sweeps month or whatever it was, which was February. And so my, my editor called me in uh and said so we need you to do a series for february for the sweeps i said okay great on what and he said religion i'm like yeah i know that's my beat but like what and he's like you'll figure it out and so i thought back to like what have i done that was really popular and Of course, two years earlier, I had done all these conversations with Bono about faith and activism. So, the juxtaposition of asking somebody who's not a faith leader to talk about faith with something that seemed to resonate with readers. And so, we thought, okay, uh, we've got a couple of pretty hot political races, and politics is a sport in Chicago, so let's maybe try that. And so I asked Mayor Daley at the time, I asked our two sitting senators at the time. um, One said no. And uh, the other one said yes, eventually. That's Dick Durbin, who still Mm. represents the great state of Illinois in the Senate. Um, Most of the other politicians we asked were like panicked. Like Mm. you, as if we said, can we see your sex tape? I mean, Mm. it was just, Mm. Poli- uh, politics and religion uh, don't mix. Some people say they do. They have to because they're both very personal and very, you know, communal. But it we asked, it had to cast the net a bit wider, and so we said, well, let's let's ask the candidates who are running for things. And so at the time, Barack was running against a guy named Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan, who was married to an actress who was in one of the Star Wars. Not not Star Wars Star Trek, sorry, if my brother's listening to this, I just <laughs> conflated Star Wars and Star Trek, and he just had a heart attack um star Star Trek Jerry Ryan was her name, so he was somewhat known um and Catholic and supposedly mm. like very Catholic yeah. um and he came to his interview with like an in a whole staff full of people. We had to have it at his place. he was mm. super he was sweating, super nervous when I asked when I called Barack obama's campaign communications director she got back to me right away and she said yes right away Mm. and uh we set up a time and it was going to be on a saturday because that was the time he had and i said as we were hanging up the phone great i'll see you then she goes oh no 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 he's coming alone i went "Uh, uh, great good for me like no no flack in the corner going uh no uh, senator actually and so we met At a restaurant on a Saturday morning, a cafe came in, knew the name of the guy behind the counter, grabbed a protein shake and rolled up, literally rolled up his sleeves and sat down. And we had a a conversation for about 90 minutes
2: Mm.
1: where he never flinched. He was very comfortable talking about his faith. Um, The very first thing he said is, I am a Christian. Mm. Um, and, but he went on and not, but he went on to explain what that meant means Mm. to him and how he got there. Mm. He comes from a really multi, multi, uh, religious background, multicultural Mm. background, as most people know. Um, his mother was from the Midwest. Her, her parents were churchgoers, you know, just kind of Midwestern Protestants. Mm. She was very spiritual, but more open, um, his birth father was from Kenya, and he described his dad as agnostic. His grandmother from Kenya was uh, Muslim. He eventually lived for part of his childhood in Indonesia with his mother and stepfather and his sister and went to a Catholic school in a majority Muslim country. Mm. Um So faith for him was more conceptual until he had been doing community organizing in Chicago for a number of years, which you cannot do Mm. without the help of the black church. Mm. And so he described, um, he says that he is a born-again Christian, and he explained the Sunday that he went forward at an altar call at Trinity United Church of Christ and I, you know, dutifully recording this and taking notes and we went on to talk about something else. And this is the thing that impressed me most about him. I, and I don't think I've ever done another interview with any other figure, whether they're a religious leader or a political leader, or a famous person or a regular person who went back to clarify something that they didn't actually need to clarify. Mm. Instead of just leaving that, He was a born again Christian. He went forward one Sunday. He wanted. He went back. He said, "I want to explain. I don't want to make it sound like that was an epiphany for me, Mm. because it wasn't. It was part of a longer process that had been happening in my life and in my heart and my my relationship with God over time." Mm. And I thought, like. Dude, you could have just left that there. Evangelicals would have claimed you as one of their own instead of, you know, constantly wondering if you were a closet Muslim. It was a very, very interesting interview because he was so honest and because he was so frank and because he didn't have to search for answers. He he knew what he believed. He knew what his story was. So that interview with him um, is the most intervie- interesting interview I've ever done not because of its content but because of its effect. Mm. It uh, it became over time like a mirror for people.
2: Mm.
1: Whatever your preconceived notion was about Barack Obama before you read it, it affirmed whatever it was mm. that you already believed about him. So if you thought he was a Christian and a good and a good man, mm. um then you would see that in there. Mm if you thought he wasn't a Christian and mm. maybe even a closet Muslim, mm. um, apparently you could find that in there too. <laughs> and um, it's been misquoted. The quotes have been taken out of context more times than I can count. Mm. Um, none of this seems to bother mm. President Obama mm. at all. Mm. Um, again, because he is a person of, I believe, mm. great faith. Yeah. Um, I mean, I sat across the table from him and he looked mm. straight into my eyes the whole time. Mm. He wasn't sweating. He wasn't nervous. <laughs> mm. uh, he didn't have notes with him. Nothing. Didn't have handlers it was there. To no, count. and I I mean, I do this mm. for a living. I've interviewed thousands of people, and that man was telling me the truth. Mm. So I know what I heard, and I know mm. what I saw, and I know mm. what it meant when he said it. Mm. But it can. It, every once in a while, mm. less so now that he's not in office anymore, but it mm. would... You know, once a year, the calls would come. Can you yeah. come on CNN to talk about the faith? Because yeah. he hasn't given another interview at, yeah. of of any size about his faith since. But you know, at such a time as this, in, in the United States, where we've got a man in the White House who has the support of evangelicals who castigated the last guy, who was actually mm. a very humble and mm. very devoted believer mm. in Jesus Christ. Uh, it. Um, mm. It yeah.
0: It's a, quite a stark just, <laughs> juxtaposition. It
1: really yeah. is. It's like bizarro world, or like yeah. we're living in the upside down, yeah. you know?
0: And did he, in that interview, refer to the word evangelical? No, a word?
1: actually, it's interesting. Um, no, it's he didn't use that word himself. And um, later on, in another conversation, mm-hmm. when he was running for president, mm-hmm. he came into the... Uh, Editorial board at the Sun Times, and I sat in on that. Mm. And if I'm remembering this correctly, I asked him. I had a couple minutes with Mm. him, and I said, "Would you call?" I was working on a series Mm. at the time about evangelical clout in Chicago, which is a whole thing. I would have to explain how clout clout (laughs) works in the Chicago context, but it essentially means like political influence Mm. of evangelicals is Mm. what I was looking at. And I said, "Would you call yourself an evangelical?" He's like, "No, that's not." that's not part of the black church Mm. experience. It's not, that means something different. um, Essentially he believes the same things, but Mm. he wouldn't apply that label to himself, which is the same answer I got from Mm. almost every African American person I asked, Mm. I talked to about the, uh, for that next project I did about evangelicals and you know, they were trying to say, and again, this is more than a decade ago, um, that that word for many people in their community telegraphs something that it, it is the polar opposite of what it should mean, mm. that it, you know, means. Um, small-minded and perhaps racist again 10 years ago Mm. and now we see that's exactly what that word has come to mean in the last Mm. three years and i used to you know i I was an evangelical if you look at the theological definition of that Mm. i am an evangelical Mm. but and i tried to hold on to that Mm. word and in the public uh forums and tried to make it mean what it meant and about 6 months ago I went forget it here have it we'll mm. we'll come up with another word yeah um because that one is so tainted yeah and it has become the inverse of what it should yeah. mean it's yeah. a yeah it's yeah. bizarre it's a it's become an antichrist kind of it's it's attached to an antichrist
0: spirit mm. I believe mm. now in the states yeah which is which is uh so deeply sad when I think of mm-hmm. my own Dad, who who would have been the first person I ever heard use the phrase that he was an evangelical to hear, Mm. to hear it used at a time of um, where it's kind of co-opted with a politics of fear. And I suppose maybe we can just end with this. Um, I suppose when I think of politics, um, you're not a politician, but you've interviewed a lot of politicians, Mm. I suppose two of the most galvanizing concepts for political leaders to to use uh, are either fear or hope, you mm. know, um, and and again, Obama and Trump, you know, they juxtapose these two concepts. Seriously, you know, Trump is vote for me because you're afraid of and I'm the. I'm the only one who can fix it <laughs> Yeah, I'm the only one who can build the wall and and stop them coming—the rapists, the you know, robbers, the brown people, the you know, I'm the only, the, yeah. you know, make America great again, you know, instead of this. Uh, place that it's become. Whereas Obama was, um, and not to say he was a saint, you know, oh, the, no. he had many shortcomings yep. uh, as a leader, but at least, at the very least, um, he his politics were one of hope, you know, of believing the best in people. And right. I suppose the, the question I finished asking you in Bilahi, in Seamus Heaney's home village, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the film we made, Guardians of the Flame, was, do you see kind of hope for the future? And in a time of... Uh, despair or polarization, unprecedented polarization, can you find hope?
1: Um, I would say if I am a follower of the Christ and can't manage to find some hope somewhere, even a little glimmer of it, then um, I shouldn't even pretend to call myself a follower of Christ. That said, this has been the darkest, least hopeful, Mm -hmm. um, painful isn't quite the word, it's like um, oppressive, it's heavy, 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 heavy time where hope just seems like a trite idea Uh, and that's when and i think this is what i've started to realize um in in a year where i mean just personally my mother passed away 3 months ago my mother-in-law died at the beginning of the year we've we've lost all kinds of people personal friends great artists um we're at each other's throats there's an idiot in the white house who's trying to kill us all it's you have people in the same pews turning on each other it none of this is a new story for you here in ireland this is when you realize that hope isn't a fluffy little object. Hope Mm. is a really, um, radical Mm. and really strong, Mm. not just notion, but force. Mm. Um, and it's something like, um, happiness. You can sort of, you can create yourself or Mm. self perpetuate. Joy isn't joy Mm. is like a gift. Faith isn't something that you can create on your own. Faith is also a gift. You have to tend it, mm-hmm. but it's something that can just be given to you that comes out of mm-hmm. nowhere and it makes no sense, but there it is. Mm-hmm. Um I think hope is one of those things that we have it, that is a it's a gift that's been given to all of us much like grace. We have to go looking for it mm-hmm. harder when we don't think that we can see it. Um but it's there, and where and where do I see it? Um, I see some of it in the young people um, who are stepping up and doing the work that we should have done mm. a generation or two ago. But I also see it in um, the older people who have been through a lot more. We're you know in midlife, mm. but people who are in the winter of their lives, who are in the, you know, the second half of the second half mm. of life, who um, who are out there protesting to getting arrested. Mm. Jane Fonda, this mm-hmm. is a, a silly example, but it's not. Jane, Jane Fonda, who's a woman of faith, 81 years old, moved to D.C., or at least bought an apartment there for a while, so she can get arrested protesting climate change every week. Mm -hmm. And every week she has. Mm -hmm. And that is inspiring. That's like hashtag squad goals. Mm -hmm. So I see it in the young people. I see it in the old people. Um, I see it in uh, the hope that the planet is in so much trouble just physically. But then you see, you know, a a little white flower that shoots Mm -hmm. up out of... Um, a crack in the sidewalk or I covered the fires in California last mm-hmm. year up in um, a place ironically called paradise. And I remember I arrived maybe like a week or 10 days afterward and it was scorched. I mean that, that fire moved so quickly and it was so hot it melted cars, mm-hmm. it melted houses. Mm-hmm. And there's a big um, kind of skyway that comes through this huge, huge, Alpine Valley to get into town and all, everything is black, the trees, everything all around. And then I noticed out of the corner of my eye, I thought it was spray paint and I got out of my car and I went and I looked and it was shoots of brand new green grass. Mm, mm. Like mm. hope springs eternal. Is it actually a thing mm. and it doesn't depend on us, yeah. but right now I think we owe it to the world And we certainly owe it to God to make sure we go looking for it, especially when we don't think there is any.
0: Mm. Thank you, Kathleen. That's beautiful words to finish with, and thanks for, um, I think, being uh, someone who's through your words you have articulated a faith that warms and not that burns. And so, in that sense of the language we use, you've become you have been a guardian of the flame. Oh my gosh! Thank you, and thanks for. uh, being here thanks for walking the border um for giving your little piece of what you can do and may we all do what we can do yeah. in whatever place we're in um uh, so thanks for thank your you. time
1: thank you for making me feel so very much at home
0: yeah you're welcome